0: Welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us. John chapter 13 is a remarkable passage because of two major betrayals that the Lord Jesus Christ was about to experience. But what was really incredible was not only the Lord's predictions that both Judas and Peter would betray him, but that those predictions were made to each man's face. Now, it's hard to fathom how the Lord was able to withstand those enormous betrayals, but it's even more amazing to me that in the case of Peter, he both forgave the betrayal and then forgave and restored his betrayer who became one of his greatest all-time apostles, and yet it happened. What kind of insight can we gain from the Lord and his word about this common human experience of being very deeply hurt and betrayed and yet learning how to forgive and trust again? We're gonna talk about it today with Phil Waldrop, who is founder and CEO of Phil Waldrop Ministries and host of the Women of Joy, Gridiron, and Celebrators Conferences, and his new book is called Beyond Betrayal. Phil, it's great to have you with us today. How are you doing?
3: I'm doing great, Janet, and it is so good to be with you.
0: Well, thank you. You understand this problem of betrayal in a very personal way. You had an experience that was quite jaw-dropping that you explain in the book. Can you tell that story and kind of talk about the basis for this book?
3: Well, I did. You know, the basis of the book is that I travel and I talk with Christians all the time. And I am discovering a lot of Christians really deal with forgiving someone, and it's because there was a betrayal in their life. Someone they loved, someone they trusted, took that love and trust, and in a selfish way, abused it. And I know that from firsthand, because over 20 years ago, one of my dearest friends and colleagues who worked with me in ministry uh, was a person that I discovered was not what I thought he was. And matter of fact, Uh, there's a kind of an interesting journey how I found that out. There was actually a legal investigation that was going on. And because of some relationships that he had, they thought maybe that he and some of his family was involved. Now, let me very quickly say they were not involved. And that was totally clear because it was money laundering. They were chasing a lot of different avenues. But out of that, I discovered... Um, that he was involved in some things that were very immoral and unethical. And uh, to watch how initially there was a brokenness and a repentance, only some time later, when he returned to the behavior, to discover that he wasn't as repentant and became very angry. And so it took me years, and I underlined that word, to process that betrayal. But out of that experience, I now have been able to help people to get through their betrayals and that's been encouraging to me.
0: What would you say was the actual betrayal part of your experience with your friend? When you talk about the federal law enforcement agencies coming in and wanting to talk to you and you know you went through months of turmoil and then you seemingly got repentance and then he turned on you later, was the turning really the betrayal part of what went on between you and your friend and, and was that really what lasted so long for those years afterward that, that made it so hard?
3: In some ways, yes, but I think what made it hard for me was that I just did not believe he was capable of doing what he did. And I think the very nature of a betrayal is that we really do not think this person that we love and we are trusting uh, would do what they've done. Because people ask me all the time why was my spouse unfaithful or why did my business partner run off with the money or why did my best friend betray a confidence that's now used against me and i i find the common thread is because people act in a selfish manner they put their own interests ahead of your interest and what happened to me was a very painful experience and what really was hurtful for me is i just didn't think he was capable and it was like he didn't care Hmm. and I think that is the heart some betrayals the betrayer is very repentant very broken and they want the relationship to be restored but many times the betrayer doesn't they just kinda walked away and it leaves us in a lot of pain, and, and it really affects us emotionally, spiritually, and in many cases, financially.
0: Yeah. Now, this friend of yours claimed to be a Christian as well, right? Mm-hmm. So that makes it kind of a double whammy, it, I think, for a lot of Christians who say it's one thing to be betrayed by somebody who doesn't name the name of Jesus Christ, but it's a whole other matter when you thought the person was a Christian. And, and did that feel like a heavier weight because your friend claimed to be a Christian and, and was making that profession?
3: And it was for me, and I'll tell you why. Because he was also a leader in the church we attended. And because of the way that I discovered some of the things initially, I was not able to disclose how I knew that information. Although he confirmed it to me, I was not able to disclose it. And because of the investigation, I was not able to discuss it with anyone. So a lot of other church leaders Kind of turned against me as well because they didn't think he was capable. Now, let me hasten to say, about a year or two years after that experience, his wife and some other people discovered what I had discovered, and his life really did not, it just kind of took a train wreck at that point. Hmm. But it was painful for me because other Christians at times were defending him. And I find many times when we are betrayed, If there's friends or mutual friends or other people, sometimes they don't want to deal with their own betrayal, and they keep trying to get us back together, amend things, and yet you know the pain that you caused. And so for me, yes, it was harder, and I think it's harder when you are betrayed by someone who you are convinced is a follower of Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah. So you also had the experience of wanting to be vindicated. You you were you were claiming something that people didn't believe, so that's like adding insult to injury beyond what you already were feeling.
3: It's true. And you know, especially when you deal with someone who is likable and other people trust them. By the nature of being a church leader there was a lot of trust. And uh, you you know, mutual friends didn't understand how could you, and they want you to tell them all the gossip and tell me all the you know the 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 details. And in my case, I was partly I couldn't, and partly I really didn't want to because I, I have to be honest, I was hurting so deeply myself that I could not process that pain with other people. And sometimes people come along beside you, kind of like Job's friend in the Old Testament. They think they're helping, but they're really hurting. Yes. And so sometimes it's tough just to say to your friends, you know, I need some space and I don't want to talk about it.
0: Yeah, I don't blame you. How how did that betrayal affect you? What kind of impact did it have in terms of uh, actual circumstances that you went through afterward or actual pain that you felt afterward? How did it manifest itself in your life?
3: Well, in a practical sense, there were some financial complications, and because anyone who's very deeply involved in what you do, whether it's your work or your ministry or whatever, and as an employee, um, you know, they're leaving, especially when they leave under bad circumstances or negative circumstances, you have to kind of pick that up. But here's how it affected me. Up until that time in my life, because I had had a wonderful childhood, a wonderful family, wonderful extended family, wonderful church that I grew up in, I really trusted everybody. Now I went to the other extreme. When you've been betrayed, you find yourself thinking, wait a minute, if I can't trust this person, how do I know I can trust all these other people? Right. So for me, it shattered my ability to trust people. And that was probably the immediate, and the one it took me longer to get through. In fact, I have to tell you, Janet, there was something I realized in Scripture is that, you know, the Bible teaches us to forgive, and uh, many times people don't know what forgiveness really is in Scripture. But you know in the Bible, it never tells us we are to trust other people. Hmm. And the reason I stress that is it's trusting people is not a commandment. Forgiving is, but not trusting. Trust has to be earned, and it means accountability. Yeah. And when people don't want accountability, and they don't want people to speak in their life, then it hurts you on the trust issue.
0: Right, right. And, and yet, how many times in Scripture are we told to trust the Lord? Over and oh, over that's and it. over. You
3: trust the Lord, but yeah. not people. Because no. He doesn't fail you, people will
0: keep a will. I think that that is such a common experience that you were expressing here, Phil, that you were having the ramifications going through all of the results of what happened to you from your friend. And the result was you had a reaction to everybody else, regardless of whether or not it was warranted. But boy, this is an important subject. Beyond Betrayal is the name of the book. Phil Waldrup, my guest. We're, we're going to come back to the conversation after this break. So stay with us on Janet Meffer today. Christians losing their businesses for not baking wedding cakes for homosexuals. Parents losing custody for not affirming their child's gender identity. Big tech censoring Christian books, videos, and social media posts. This isn't a dystopian nightmare. It's America in 2020. But what will God's people do to respond to the sexual radicals whose rising social and political power is threatening our religious freedom and our free speech? It's time for Christians to get informed about the looming threats that we're facing and learn how to respond as both salt and light. That's why I'd like to personally invite you to join me at our second annual God's Voice Conference, a biblical response to LGBTQ plus tyranny coming to Oklahoma City on April 17th and 18th. You'll hear from an unprecedented lineup of some of the leading Christian thinkers, pastors, pro-family activists, and medical and therapeutic experts who are fighting on the front lines of this battle and standing firmly on God's word in the face of growing LGBTQ plus opposition to Christianity. Speakers, including Dr. Everett Piper, Joe Dallas, Dr. Quentin Van Meter from the American College of Pediatricians, and Greg Burt from the California Family Council, will all reveal the social, political, and spiritual threats to the church from this movement. They'll offer powerful biblical teaching and encouragement for the battle ahead. You'll hear testimonies from ex-homosexuals whose lives were transformed by the power of the gospel and learn how to answer common arguments that promote homosexuality and transgenderism. Let me tell you, there's nothing else like God's Voice Conference to get Christians ready to stand in this evil day. So I hope to see you at the God's Voice Conference, an outreach of First Stone Ministries, April 17th and 18th in Oklahoma City, and take advantage of our early bird discount registration, only $85 through March 1st. So don't delay. Go to godsvoice.us. That's godsvoice.us and register for a conference unlike any other. Go to godsvoice.us and register now. What the church needs now is God's voice. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to be talking with Phil Waldrup, founder and CEO of Phil Waldrop Ministries and author of the book, Beyond Betrayal, Overcome Past Hurts and Begin to Trust Again. And whether or not you've ever had a betrayal situation in your life, you will relate to this because there will come a time when somebody will betray you. I think it's just part of the common human experience. The question is, as Christians, how do we recover from that? Phil, you were telling your story of your friend and, and the kind of betrayal you went through and you said that the result of all of that was that you... You ended up pretty much trusting nobody. And and that makes sense because this person was a very trusted friend. And you think if I had, you know, at least I can relate to this from betrayals I've had. I trusted this person. Maybe my judgment is flawed. Was that also part of your thinking? You know, maybe I don't have very good judgment myself in whom I can trust. Maybe I just need to pull back and trust nobody for a while.
3: Oh, yeah. One of the lines that I put in Beyond Betrayal my book is, I felt like I needed to go to the tattoo parlor and have them tattoo the word stupid across my forehead. Because I, I, and you know, one of the things that really hurt, too, is your friends come in and they say, oh, well, I could have told you, or I saw that. Or, you know, I knew all along. And then you get really flustered because you say, why didn't you tell me? Now, I don't really believe all of those people saw it. They're just trying to make you feel better. But I did feel like all of a sudden, who could I trust? And it does affect your judgment on people, and you don't want to trust people. And until I was really able to come to the point of understanding what forgiveness means and walking through forgiveness and getting to the other side, was I able to look back and say, you know what? Uh, the Lord did not waste the experience. I don't think the Lord ever wastes time, and I don't think he ever wastes experiences. And he didn't waste the experience with me because it taught me that, yes, you trust people, but it's also a healthy thing to build in accountability and to have people who can speak truth into your life, even when it hurts.
0: Well, right. So what was the turning point when you began to heal from that betrayal and maybe come out of that situation where you weren't trusting anybody?
3: You know, the, the turning point for me was when my oldest daughter said to me, Dad, I don't think you're over it. Because, see, I was like most Christians who go through a betrayal. You know, it, there's one or two reactions we have. We either say immediately, oh, I forgive him, I'm over it, when we're really not. Or we go to the other extreme and say, well, I can't forgive him. I'm sorry, I just can't. Well, I was in that first crowd. I've forgiven him, I'm over it. But it was my oldest daughter who said, Dad, you're really not, because, you know, you you really don't give people the freedom to believe they are who they are, to be trusted. You're skeptical about everybody and everything. And when I began to realize that my own daughter recognized what was happening, and my wife began to speak into my life. And I have to tell you, Janet, that took me 20 years to get to that place. And I'm like, you know, you may be right. Maybe I need to understand what it means to forgive and to be able to walk through that forgiveness and get to the other side. And so really for me, it was the willingness of somebody that I love very dearly, my my daughter, who was able to speak truth into my life. And it was perfect timing because I think if she had done that earlier, I wouldn't have been ready for it. But I was ready for it.
0: But 20 years 20 years. I mean, that is an extraordinarily long time to be holding on to that without even recognizing that you are. And, and, you know, a long time to lose people along the way. Did you struggle with that at all, saying, boy, I could have been trusting other people who are nothing like my friend, and I really have lost something by not having dealt with this earlier?
3: Oh, totally, because what it does, it does affect your relationships because you don't, you know, as I tell people, there's a tendency when you go through a betrayal is you start picking up things and you build a wall around your heart. And you build that wall around your heart because your first reaction is, and it's it's a natural reaction, to say I'm not going to let anybody else hurt me. Well, the way no one will ever hurt me again is I will never allow anyone to get close to me. In other words, I won't let anybody into my life. But if you build a wall high enough to keep people out, uh, you built that wall high enough that no one can love you. And so at the same time you're trying to avoid being hurt, you're avoiding having relationships that are healthy relationships that we all need in our life. You know, the Lord did not he did not design us to live in isolation. If he did, I think he would have stuck every one of us on an island by ourselves. Mm -hmm. He put us with people. We need to have healthy relationships. And, you know, the Bible is very clear on what we need to do. It just, it took me a long time, even though I was speaking in churches every Sunday, to really realize what the Lord was saying to us.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Well, I had mentioned at the outset of the interview, John chapter 13, where Jesus Mm -hmm. tells Judas, you're going to betray me, and then he tells Peter, you're going to deny me. So he was Betrayed, right there in that one passage, twice by two major, major disciples of his. One was a lost cause. The other one, he completely restored. And you've got a chapter in your book about Judas. How do you look at how the Lord handled betrayal as a model for us?
3: Well, Jesus is an example. And, you know, one of the things that was so moving to me was when I sat down and I read each of the Gospel accounts and how they everyone uh, shared that betrayal. For example, let me just say, in, in Mark, if you read Mark chapter 14, verse 51, there, it mentions a young man who was there watching and observing, and they lay hold on him, and he literally left his linen cloth and ran home naked. Well, Bible scholars believe that's John Mark, the writer of that gospel. I think Mark observed Jesus, Jesus going through that betrayal and because he didn't react in anger and try to hurt other people I think it had a great impact on Mark so that he became a co-worker with Paul and gave us one of the Gospel accounts but I also believe when you read John's account John said in John 6 that he knew from the beginning that Judas was the betrayer and then I think because he was God I think Jesus knew that Judas had already gone And made uh, a decision to betray him for 30 pieces of silver but it's interesting when he returned to the disciples that John tells us that Jesus washed the feet of every one of the disciples including the feet of Judas yes and the lesson I had to learn through that is one of the things that happens when you've been betrayed, it's not just trusting people. We don't like to say this as Christians. You really stop loving people unconditionally. Right. But Jesus demonstrated unconditional love. You know, if I be honest, if I'd been Jesus, I probably would have gotten to Judas and certainly wouldn't have washed his feet, might have taken the towel and tried to choke him to death. Right. I'm just being honest. Yeah. That would have been our human reaction. But Jesus shows us you keep loving people and you leave the results to God, as opposed to trying to take them into your own hands.
0: Well, and and it's interesting to me that that's such a great point. And it's interesting to me that in the case of Peter. Talk about a restoration. I mean, and when the Lord was finally resurrected, he tells the angel, go tell Peter. You know, right. there's this, you know, such mercy and such grace. And that also, to me, is is uh, an example of hope that th- sometimes if somebody has betrayed you, there can be restoration. I think sometimes we'll jump to the conclusion that if I've been betrayed, that's it for the relationship. There's no going back. There's no reconciliation. But that's not always true. I mean, you think about cases of infidelity in marriage or, or something along those lines. What about the hope that people do have that sometimes when you're betrayed, you can reconcile?
3: Well, you can. And let's take the example of marriage. You know, someone said to me, and it's very insightful it takes two people to start a marriage, but it only takes one person to end a marriage. Hmm. And sometimes when people have gone through unfaithfulness in a marriage, it really depends on whether the betrayer really wants the relationship to be restored. Are they repentant? And if they do, the, and this is for people who maybe are on that side who have become the betrayer, you have to understand the person you betrayed is, is really going through a lot of pain that you as the betrayer may not be going through. And you have to allow them to question everything and to regain and rebuild the trust they had in accountability. And that takes... Time It doesn't get it overnight. So I tell people, if you want the relationship to be restored, it takes two people working towards restoration, and it's a willingness of one of them to be an open book to say, look, you have the right to question anything you want to question. And if they are willing to do that, over time, I believe that trust can be restored as the Lord brings about the healing. But if the betrayer is not willing to have that accountability, I'm not sure there's going to be a whole lot of hope the relationship.
0: Right. How do you forgive a betrayer when you can't reconcile? That sometimes happens, where there's a break in the relationship, but as a Christian, you still know you need to forgive the person who betrayed you.
3: Well, you know, forgiving is not forgetting. I think that's, if we can forget it, that's great. But let me tell you what I believe biblical forgiveness is. I believe biblical forgiveness is when I make a decision that I'm giving up all rights to revenge, I am no longer going to try to get even, I'm no longer going to try to destroy the reputation of this person, I'm not going to do anything to harm that person, and that is a choice. And, and, and I have to say, it's not a one-time choice. For me, it was a choice I had to make every day, yeah. because there were times when people would say something affirming about him, and maybe what they were saying was true. I mean, they may be making a statement that was very, a true statement about some ability or talent that he had. And yet I would always felt this need to say, well, that's true, but let me tell you about this, because I wanted to even the score. I wanted everybody to be on my side uh, of the betrayer. And I found that when I was able every day to do that, and then for me, and this took time, it doesn't happen in 24, 48 hours, it took me years, that you can begin to pray for that person and pray for God's blessings on that person. And, you know, for me, that was not easy to do, I'm being very honest, Mm -hmm. but with time, I did it and was able to say, you know, I I really can pray for their best. And I knew for me, when I received a phone call uh, where he had applied for a job and they knew that he had worked for me, and they called and asked for a recommendation, and I thought, now, how am I gonna handle this? Because I wanna be honest and truthful, but at the same time, I don't want to destroy them. And fortunately for me, they basically said, did he work there? Um, you know, did he resign? or Was he terminated? He did resign. And I said that. And they said, thank you. And they hung up the phone. Hmm. But I also knew when I hung up the phone, that phone call was a lot for me. I think the Lord allowed it because I could have said, oh, let yeah. me tell you. And just you know, let it all out. But at that point was when I realized maybe, maybe I reached the point where I could forgive.
0: Very good. Well, the name of the book, Beyond Betrayal, Phil Waldrop. Thank you so much, Phil. It was great to have you. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com.
2: This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford.
0: Well, I'm glad to see the... Born Alive Act being resuscitated. I think that that's always a good thing. Democrats have blocked it over 80 times, 80 times. You would think there would be some aspects of human life on which Republicans and Democrats could agree when it comes to the smallest, most vulnerable human beings in our society. But these people are so far gone. They're so far over the edge. They're so radicalized. They have bought into such evilness, such wickedness, such moral degeneracy on the issue of human life that it's hard to even have a rational conversation with some of these people. I watch sometimes these congressmen and congresswomen trying to make a very, very basic point. And, you know, the way the leftists respond is as if they are speaking a completely different language. So I want to just bring you up to speed a little bit on what was going on yesterday. Representative Carol Miller from West Virginia, the Republican, who has been all over on this issue, introduce this Born Alive Act as an amendment to the D.C. statehood bill that's just been introduced, which is ultimately going to go nowhere. But I wanted for you to listen to a little bit of what Representative Miller had to say regarding the importance of protecting lives of these children who are born alive. And she cites, and I'm glad she did this, the Governor Ralph Northam incident of last year. Why this guy still has a job is beyond me. But listen a little bit here to Representative Miller. Cut one.
2: Abortion in Washington, D.C. has long been a contested issue in Congress. What should be undisputed, however, is the care of a child who is born alive after an attempted abortion. Unfortunately, as evidenced by Virginia Governor Ralph Northam's comments last year, Not all members believe that a child born alive should be protected. Governor Northam stated, the infant would be delivered. The infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physician and the mother. This blatant disregard for human life cannot be tolerated. This amendment would require healthcare practitioners to give the same level of care to a child born alive after an attempted abortion as a child at the same gestational age. It would also require the immediate transfer of the surviving infant to a hospital. Finally, it would require that healthcare practitioners or other employees report any violations of this provision to law enforcement for criminal prosecution.
0: All good, right? All really important stuff. Then she winds it up, and you'll get to hear a little bit from Representative Jim Jordan tacking on to the end of her comments, his own. Listen to cut two.
2: Our most vulnerable and youngest citizens deserve the utmost protection under the law. I urge members to support this amendment and protect the lives of those infants who are born alive. Finally, it would require the health care practitioners or other employees report any violations of this provision to law enforcement for criminal protection.
3: I would just want to support the General Lady's amendment, the um, from West Virginia's amendment. There are some things that are so darn important you wanna do everything you can to protect them. And we're talking about the sanctity of life. In this situation, we're talking about the sanctity of life of the child who's already born. Um, and we, as the gentlelady pointed out, the, the comments from a current governor of the state of Virginia are the reason that she is offering this important amendment to this legislation, in the event that it becomes a state. This, 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 is, this is just fundamental. This is common sense. This is so basic. That's all this amendment is, and I appreciate the.
0: Well, it's very good. It is excellent. And I'm glad that the Republicans keep putting forward this very important piece of legislation. So many lies are circulating about this. National Review wrote about this, that most Democrats who opposed the legislation last time around claimed that it is redundant. Or unnecessary. Senator Patty Murray of Washington, for example, said we already have laws against infanticide. This was back on the Senate floor last year. This is a gross misinterpretation of the actual language of the bill that is being asked to be considered and therefore I object. But the fact of the matter is there isn't any existing federal law requiring doctors to provide medical care for infants who survive abortions. In fact, in 2002, the Born Alive Infants Protection Act established that the terms person, human being, child, and individual in federal law include every infant born alive, even after an abortion. It instituted no penalties for physicians who neglect to care for such infants. So they're going around saying, oh, this is redundant. We already have laws on the books that protect these kinds of children. No, they don't. But, you know, all they have to do is lie and the media goes along with it. What do you think the media is going to fact check them? There's no way. Here's why I think this matters so much. I was reflecting on the fact that for the last several years, we have had to put up with a nonstop ongoing yelling match coming our way from the mainstream media and the evangelical elites screaming and yelling at evangelical Christians who voted for Donald Trump as a violation of every principle we hold dear, which, you know, hyperbole much, I I don't really understand how you get to that point where you're so over the top, but they've done it for the last three years. They're going to continue to do it, no doubt. And one question they never seem to answer is, who would you have had evangelical Christians vote for instead of Donald Trump? If you have Hillary Clinton pro-abortion, pro-gay marriage, radical, like there's no tomorrow, years and years of scandals, coming fresh off the Benghazi scandal, coming fresh off the homebrew email server scandal, necessitating people screaming, lock her up at various events. Really, that was the moral choice? Or do you say Donald Trump, says that he's pro-life. Donald Trump says that he will be friendly to Christians. Donald Trump says that he will protect religious liberty. Well, we got to vote for somebody. And so 81% of evangelical white Christians voted for Donald Trump and have been yelled at ever since for it. What I want to ask this time around is, who would you have Christians vote for? And I'm I'm not making a statement about who should vote for whom. What I'm saying is, if you're going to talk about how how immoral it was to vote for Donald Trump, who would you argue for this time around as being the really moral candidate? I think this could be a fun exercise. Now, let's go first to Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, just a few days ago during the Our Rights, Our Courts presidential forum in Concord, New Hampshire, interacted with MSNBC's Stephanie Rule on the issue of abortion. Listen to Cut 3. Then is there such a thing as a pro-life Democrat in your vision of the party? I
3: think being pro-choice is an absolutely essential part of being a Democrat. If you're asking me, if you're asking me, and and I think I may be wrong on this, I think in the Senate, probably 95% of the Democrats are pro-choice. You have a few who are not Uh, in the House, maybe even a higher percentage. So that's kind of what my view is. I think by this time in history, I think when we talk about what a Democrat is, I think
2: being pro-choice is essentially an essential part of that.
0: It's essential to be for child killing in order to be a Democrat, according to Bernie Sanders. What is moral about that? Now, let's go to another cut. This is Sean Hannity over on Fox interviewing Tulsi Gabbard. And listen to how she dodges a very important question that he keeps putting to her that desperately needs an answer. Listen to cut four.
2: I would love, did to, it. I would love to be able to work with President Trump on ending this failed war on drugs.
0: And I think a first you place to start is by ending the federal marijuana prohibition. You want
3: to legalize all drugs?
2: I think that we need to look to the model in Portugal. You, you no, want to we legalize need to look to the model in Portugal, where there has been a decriminalization and in some heroin? cases legalization well, and regulation. Heroin So that we treat substance abuse and addiction. Would you legalize heroin? Substance abuse and Would addiction. Would you legalize as a heroin? Don't issue. make me be a jerk. As a health care issue, rather than one where we are putting Something. more and more people Would you in our it?
1: prisons. Would you legalize it?
2: This is my point. We've got to end the failed
0: war on drugs. You're so that we can No, we can help dodging. people. I think we know the answer when you have to ask it numerous times and you can't get a flat out, no, I wouldn't legalize heroin. You got to conclude that the answer is yes. Yes, I'll legalize heroin. Why else would she dodge the question? And if she really believes that we ought to decriminalize heroin, why doesn't she just come out and say it? Why does she keep it? Well, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about that. What is moral about any of this. I don't really understand what is moral about any of this, and there's more to come. We're going to return right after this. You're listening to Janet Muffer today. Healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty Health Share as a Christian healthcare sharing ministry. Liberty Health Share is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as one hundred ninety nine dollars a month, Liberty Health Share has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty Health Share has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctor hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a non ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. When an abortion-minded woman walks into a preborn center, it is a divine appointment. It's where she encounters the love of Jesus Christ and has the opportunity to meet the beautiful life growing inside of her and find out that every baby's life matters. I got to hear how strong her heartbeat was. I was like, I felt like she was supposed to be here. And it didn't matter what anybody else told me. And all that mattered was that I was blessed with the ability to carry life inside of my body and that baby was supposed to be here for something and that was all that mattered. 80% of women in crisis pregnancies choose life after meeting their babies on ultrasound. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mafford today? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. All gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your donation goes towards saving babies lives to donate call 855-402-BABY 855-402-2229 or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com
2: you're listening to janet mefford today and now here's janet
0: Well, as we're moving into the 2020 election cycle with more and more fervor these days, I really want to return to something that's been annoying me since 2016. And that is all of the people on the never Trump side who have been wagging their fingers at us and clicking their tongues at us and telling evangelical Christians what a bunch of moral sellouts they are for having voted for Donald Trump. And what's really surprising to me is how many Christians actually feel guilty At all. For, uh, for voting the way that they did, when in fact we have seen such an overwhelmingly pro-life president come to the fore, we've seen a pro-Israel president come to the fore, pro-religious freedom president come to the fore, somebody who's been fighting for national sovereignty, somebody who's been fighting to keep the economy going and fighting for Americans and trying to stave off globalism. I mean, it's really hard, I would think, for these Never Trumpers not only to make the case that Donald Trump is even on every score, although I'm sure outlets like Christianity Today will continue to try to do that. They need somebody to subscribe to their magazine, and they know we're not going to do it, so they have to find somebody on the left who will subscribe. But at any rate, I would like to ask the question as we're heading into 2020, what is moral about any of the people who want to unseat President Trump? It is a genuine question. What is moral about any of these people? First of all, I played for you a cut of Bernie Sanders saying that you need to be pro-choice if you're going to be a Democrat. Basically, it's not an option. You have to be pro-abortion if you are going to be a Democrat. Nothing like a big tent, right? Nothing like a big tent. Then you had Tulsi Gabbard on with Sean Hannity over at Fox. He's asking her about her decriminalization plan for drugs and asks, would you decriminalize heroin? She wouldn't answer dodge 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 what about heroin dodge heroin dodge heroin dodge she didn't want to answer it so you'd have to conclude she does want to decriminalize heroin what's the deal with that well let's listen to what chris wallace had to say when he interviewed mayor pete about the drug issue listen to cut five
1: Mayor, you, you not only want to decriminalize marijuana, you want to decriminalize all drug possession. You say that the better answer is incarceration. I mean, it's rather treatment, not incarceration. Right. That's right. But isn't the fact that it's illegal to have, to possess Meth and heroin. Doesn't that, at least in some way, the fact that it's illegal, act as a, some deterrent to actually trying it in the first place? Well, I think the main thing we need to focus on is where you have distribution and, and uh, uh, the, the kind of harm that's done there. Where, yeah, of course, it's important that it remain illegal, but but you, uh, well, but for, you're, you're, for you would be criminalized it, so it wouldn't be illegal. Possession should not right. be dealt with through incarceration. And, and but you would say that possession of heroin is not illegal. ...is not going to be dealt with through incarceration. But your, your, your website says decriminalize. It would yes. not be illegal. Yes, or it could be a misdemeanor. The, the point is not the legal niceties. The point is that we have learned through 40 years of a failed war on drugs that criminalizing addiction doesn't work. Not only that, the incarceration does more harm than the offense that it's intended to deal with.
0: How do you even respond to this kind of insanity? This is
1: bonkers.
0: This is completely bonkers. You're going to decriminalize heroin. Oh, yeah, that'll really improve society and decriminalize meth. That's another fantastic idea. What you do, this is going back to Daniel Patrick Moynihan's defining deviancy down. All you need to do when you can't handle a a particular societal problem is you just call it not deviant anymore. It's not deviant. It's good. It's good. You know, what's wrong with possessing a little heroin? What's a little heroin possession among friends? What's a little bit of meth possession among friends? Nothing wrong with that. You know, because putting people in jail doesn't work. Is that why we punish is because we want to make sure that when that person gets out of jail, they're completely rehabilitated and will never commit another crime. I would argue that that's a wonderful thing, and especially through the route of prison ministries, that's a wonderful thing to be able to share the gospel with prisoners, see Jesus Christ transform their lives. And when they get out, we've seen this over and over and over again. You know, thousands of prisoners do go on to lead law-abiding lives and new lives in Jesus Christ. That's what we want as Christians. But isn't the job of the state to punish evil? Isn't it? What you're really doing when you're saying we're not going to have the criminalization of heroin anymore is you're saying heroin's no longer evil. It's no longer evil to possess it or to take it or to, you know, who cares? Who cares? So, you know, maybe somebody can possess heroin and it's just a misdemeanor. Oh, yeah, kind of like, you know. Just kind of a no big deal of a crime, and who cares, misdemeanor? I, these people, I don't even, I don't even know what to say to these people. These people are off the reservation, absolutely off the reservation. I want to cut to this particular clip also of Mayor Pete, because he was on with Joe Scarborough at MSNBC talking about green jobs. And he says, it's all about striking the right tone. You know, working class Americans, you're going to lose your jobs and you're going to move into the green economy, but it's going to be fine. I mean, listen to this guy. Keep in mind, this guy's a failed mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He's never held any bigger office than that. What does this guy know? And how moral does this sound to you? Listen to cut seven.
1: So as was most things, part of its policy and part of its tone. The, the policy piece, and I'm proposing we put over $200 billion toward this, is to directly fund and support career transitions for those who are working in the fields that are going to go through the most change. Uh, but we've also got to, to strike a tone that is not clubbing people over the head, telling them they're part of the problem if they work in these fields, but rather recruiting them to be part of the solution. Because when I talk about the millions of net new jobs that we're going to create mm-hmm. in this green economy, I think sometimes people visualize really exotic newfangled uh, jobs fusing together solar panels and and some of that is absolutely uh, what it's going to require but some of these jobs these these green jobs are very easy to understand and already exist I'm talking about Union electrical workers and carpenters insulators and glaciers we're going to need just to do the building retrofits that'll be required as part of what has to happen to find our new climate future and so finding a lot of people from industrial workers to farmers who may have been made to feel that they're the problem may have even been made to feel Feel like accepting climate science would be a kind of moral defeat mm-hmm. on their part. Instead, need to hear the message that not only can they thrive in this future, we can't do it without them. We need their help and we're ready to create the pathway. So when for away? To happen.
0: Oh, my goodness. I don't want to find our new climate future. What are you even talking about? You are a failed mayor from South Bend, Indiana. And you don't even know what marriage is supposed to be. So I'm supposed to trust you on spending $200 billion of our taxpayer money to create a whole new sector of green jobs for a supposed climate crisis that doesn't even exist. All it is is a Marxist scheme to redistribute our wealth and to destroy this country. Listen to these guys. It is just radicalism, radicalism, radicalism over and over and over and immorality and wickedness and evil on every side in various and sundry ways from various and sundry candidates. There's hardly any difference between any of them. So never Trumpers tell us who is the moral candidate to whom we should entrust our vote. Who's the really moral candidate since it's supposed to be about morals and personal morals? And and Trump definitely is so evil, we can never vote for him. Who is the moral alternative to Donald Trump? Somebody needs to answer that question. By the way, I want to play one more cut because this one is funny. Savannah Guthrie over at NBC was going to Mayor Pete and talking to him about his claim that his poll numbers among African-Americans were improving. Listen to Cut Six.
2: You've been talking about improving your numbers with the, the black electorate, but it's so far it hasn't paid any dividends. Can you show or demonstrate any progress in that regard? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And uh, a big part of what's happening right now is that uh, voters of color who are laser focused on defeating this president, more than anything else, want to know that you can actually win. Uh, The process of proving that uh, has only really been underway for the last few days, after a year of campaigning, uh, proposing, talking, and that, I believe, is getting us the look that we now need, as we will travel directly to states like Nevada, South Carolina and the Super Tuesday states that uh, have a lot of racial diversity and where we can make that case eye
2: to eye. Our last poll, our last NBC News national poll showed actually your support with African Americans dropping. So whereas it was at 3% a while back, now it's at
0: 0%. All right. I think that's pretty hilarious. When an NBC anchor is going to nail you to the wall, it becomes pretty hilarious. The Wall Street Journal also has an interesting piece. Mayor Pete is the man to beat. So why don't his rivals press him on the specifics of his record in South Bend? And uh, this author is making the case here that, you know, you need to go back to some of what Buttigieg has been unable to answer in terms of specific questions, especially those regarding South Bend's black community. For example, he says, I couldn't get it done This was Mr. Buttigieg's response when asked why the percentage of African-Americans on the police force fell to 6% from 11% during his mayorship when the population is 26% black. Then he also says we cut the black poverty rate by more than half, but that depends on a selective reading of the data. He used one-year census data instead of more accurate five-year data. So that wasn't true. And he was also slow to realize that schools in South Bend were segregated. That's what he said back in December. So hold his feet to the fire. And more than that, again, hold the never Trumpers to the fire. Tell us who the moral candidate on the left should be, that evangelical Christians should throw their support behind. I just want to hear an argument in favor of one particular candidate on the Democratic side of the aisle who you think is super, super moral. And I'll wait. Thanks for joining us on Janet Murphy Today. We'll see you next time.